You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everyone. I'm Samira Ahmed. I'm a journalist. I present Front Row um, Newswatch. And um, I've been delighted to come and interview Tom Fletcher, who will be taking questions from you shortly as well. Um, and a really interesting time to be talking to him. He's currently a visiting professor of international relations at New York University and advisor to the Global Business Coalition for Education at Emirates Diplomatic Academy. And he was British ambassador to Lebanon um, from 2011 to 2015 and Downing Street's foreign policy advisor um, for three prime ministers from 2007 to 11. So I'm guessing that's uh, Blair, Brown and Cameron. That's right. Having survived that, they thought I could cope with Beirut. <laughs> Um, and he's now an honorary fellow at Oxford University and most famously, as you may well know, he blogs as The Naked Diplomat and um, has a book called The Naked Diplomat, which you can buy. He's signing the yeah. afterwards if you want. Um, and a couple of things that will definitely come up, I think, in this discussion is that you recently led a review of British diplomacy for the UK Foreign Office and you've been working on a report on the future of the United Nations, the new UN Secretary General. Is that still underway or is that completed now? So we're due to release that on April the 18th. Uh, in New York. It's basically about how do you apply all this new technology to the old challenges the UN faces. Excellent. Well, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail as well. Um, a couple more practical things. Um, you could tweet using the hashtag Naked Diplomacy, which is up there. And we have got a microphone to take questions later on, but we've also got this app, and you can just put questions in. Um, just follow that URL, which I think is on the s screens. And, um, yeah, we can read those questions out that way too. And I think Tom is happy if we don't get through all the questions yeah. you might have, tweet or message um, him later. Right. Where should I start? Okay, I want to start with how would you define naked diplomacy? Oof. Um, well, I and mean, why uh, the need to define it? You know. Yes, I mean, I suppose the important thing is to make clear up front there is absolutely zero nudity uh, involved in any of it. There is, there is, a, um, there is a little bit of uh, a G8 summit where Berlusconi turned up almost naked, but, um, but that's got nothing to do with the idea behind naked diplomacy. It's really about trying to sort of strip away a lot of the paraphernalia um, that we've put around diplomacy over the last couple of hundred years, especially in the West. Um, we've created a kind of language of diplomacy, um, which is often full of platitudes. Um, you know, Britain and Lebanon have very warm relations on a range of bilateral and regional issues. The stuff that increasingly, in a sort of social media savvy, more switched on, connected world, just doesn't cut through and risks turning people off the very important stuff, which is actually happening as part of diplomacy. So it's trying to strip away a lot of that paraphernalia and focus us back on the core uh, elements of what we do, the, the tradecraft of what we do. And actually, the naked diplomat is not me. Um, the naked diplomat is the first um, prehistoric man who persuaded another caveman to put down the club for long enough and go hunting together. So we've got these two competing instincts for survival. One to go out and, and fight, survival of the fittest, and one to collaborate uh, for resource. And diplomats, from that moment, have always been the ones trying to promote collaboration and partnership. And in a world now much more clearly divided between wall builders and coexisters, with, of course, a wall builder in chief sitting in a very smart, big important office. Um, that seems to me to be more important than ever. 
I should say, for those who are watching this online, you can also send in your questions using that URL, so do. Um, people wonder, and you have the benefit now of having been a diplomat and having got the freedom of having stepped away from the job, about where the traditional diplomacy is dying then, or whether it's just been disrupted by... Um, you've yeah. talked implicitly about Trump there. So, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's quite a fashionable view, and it's a view probably held by other parts of government often um, that have never been super keen on on the Foreign Office. Um, I think a certain type of diplomacy is dying. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the craft itself uh, is in that kind of danger. And there's a, there's a very provocative article by Roger Cohen a couple of years ago saying diplomacy is dead. And what he means is that kind of diplomacy of the big conferences and the big set-piece breakthroughs. And I think, you know, if you follow his argument, you can say that diplomacy has failed often. And Syria... You know, I lived one hour from Damascus in Beirut. Syria is, a, is the example of what happens when diplomacy fails. Um, but he's also looking at the failure of the UN Security Council to refunction over the last couple of years on a number of major, major issues. Um, and this fact that other people are doing diplomacy now. Uh, you know, Google do diplomacy. Google have envoys around the world who will often have more influence in the capital than the, the British ambassador uh, necessarily will. So a certain type of diplomacy is dying. Um, you could call it the Ferrero Rocher diplomacy, the kind of, that elites talking to each other behind walls, in fortresses, at receptions, champagne receptions. That's, that's certainly dying. Um, a kind of Kodak or blockbuster form of diplomacy is dying, is being disrupted. The, um, the kind that can't innovate and change and adapt to these, uh, these new realities, and in particular can't react and adapt to, to smartphones and, and the internet. Um, but that's not to say that the core uh, diplomacy is dying at all. In, in many ways, it's becoming more important than ever. Yeah, well, I'm quite interested in going into, then, the use of social media or, you know, and, and digital technology and how far it's, it's genuinely changing the way good diplomacy works and how far it's just a huge distraction. It, it can be a massive distraction. Um, and I think one thing that's important to stress is that the the message matters more than the, the medium. Uh, diplomacy is always adapted to jumps forward in technology, whether it was the horseback travel or electricity or the television uh, or the radio, the printing press, and, and now to the internet. And we mustn't get so caught up with the excitement of a new form of communication. Um, you know, we're all going to suddenly do Instagram um, and lose the the values of diplomacy have got us this far, which are kind of curiosity and creativity and courage and ability to eat anything. Sorry. And discretion. And discretion, and calm and tact and judgment. Actually more important in a social media world and a world of alternative facts and fake news, the ability to just step back and, and take a deep breath. I mean, can we just talk through the practicalities of I mean, how is digital media being used now, um, in your experience by diplomats, well? And... And how far is it being misused? I mean, I, one might think you know, for example, <coughs> most embassies have some kind of Twitter presence. And, they'll, yeah. and as far as I can tell, they're, you know, they're still mostly tweeting out the same kind of Ferrero Rocher, here we are meeting the whatever. So, you know, is that pointless? Or is that just the, the tip of what's really going on? So I, I, I actually do think some of that is pointless. Um, and there's a risk with social media. When you do it badly, it actually does more damage than, than not doing it at all often. Um, so if you are just saying the same things and acting the same way, but just putting it through a different medium, then, then that is a problem. But there's a vast amount of, of much, much more effective uh, 
digital diplomacy than that. Such as? So, I mean, I think there are sort of three ways you can use it now. I mean, one is information gathering. And in the past, you'd write your diplomatic telegram on the basis of a couple of gin and tonics and reading an editorial and talking to a couple of people. Now, you can collect up this enormous amount of data and information and process it to give a much more accurate sense of what people are thinking uh, in the country you're serving. So there's the information gathering. Because when you talk about, you're talking about just what people are saying on social media in that country. Yeah. How do you, I mean, how you do you filter mine. that? Do you have teams then? Is that how? You can, you I mean, you have very sophisticated tools now that can mine all that data. And we're trying to actually build one of them um, at New York University at the moment that would allow diplomats to explore foreign policy trends much more effectively. But, I mean, if you're using Twitter or those other tools, you have people effectively out, out there who are curating the information for you. In Lebanon, when I, when I heard a, a bomb go off, the first thing I did was to reach for Twitter mm -hmm. because I could be pretty confident that I would quite quickly, from the trusted sources, <coughs> people I trusted, get a, a, a clear picture of what was happening. But then, that's get the information mm -hmm. gathering, but then you reach for it because it's a quick way to engage people. If we, uh, as we had to do in 2013, were planning an evacuation, the way that we would be talking to people would be, to a large extent, through social media because that's where they are. Um, but that then opens up diplomacy, opens up a conversation that you then can't close off. You can't join a conversation and then go back into the fortress again. So it's a fantastic way of engaging people that you can't otherwise talk to. In Lebanon, I wasn't, because of our rules, I wasn't allowed to talk to Hezbollah. And I certainly wasn't allowed to talk to many of the extremists around the Nusra Front and what then became uh, Islamic State, Daesh. Uh, and social media allowed me to connect with people in that space that I couldn't connect with physically, including at the times when I was stuck behind the embassy walls because of security threats. So it gives you that engagement tool. But the new and really, I think, quite exciting thing it allows you, which is the kind of cutting edge of what many diplomats are doing now, is to build campaigns of influence using social media. Can you give an example? A good one. Um, I'll give you two, uh, because I'm trying to sell a book, I'll give you two of my examples. But there are many better examples than this. One, um, when uh, the Iranian embassy in Beirut was blown up, um, I wasn't allowed to go and meet the Iranian ambassador, because at the time we didn't have any kind of contact. I was meant to adopt a hostile demeanor if I saw him. That was my instructions. Um, and yet I felt that there was a need to show a kind of human solidarity in this situation. And so I went to the embassy and donated blood outside the embassy. And that photo, conveniently, you know, we had someone to make sure the photo was taken. Um, we weren't doing it completely out of you know, altruistic, uh, for altruistic reasons. That photo went viral in Iran and was retweeted by Rouhani at that stage, who was trying to make this case that they're not all the little Satan. There's something here we can work with. Another one we did, we wanted to highlight the issue of um, mistreatment of domestic workers. Big issue across the Middle East. And it, I could have given a speech. That was the classic response. Three people might have come. You know, I could have... Uh, written an article, might have been read by three or four people, but people kind of discount that stuff. Of course the British ambassador's gonna write an article about domestic, you know, it's Human Rights Day, or whichever day it was, that everyone's writing articles that day. You know, people just sort of discount it. And so instead of that, I became a domestic worker uh, for the day. And in the morning, uh, I was cleaning bathrooms and um, uh, making the lunch and so on. In the afternoon, Kalkidan Nagusi, the 18-year-old Ethiopian who I was job swapping with, became the ambassador. And we went to see the interior minister. She gave an extraordinarily powerful, eloquent speech uh, on behalf of domestic workers across Lebanon. And it led the news for two nights. And I know, it's difficult to measure this, but I know from literally thousands of young Lebanese people have come to me and said, because of that, 
we had a conversation at the dinner table that night with our parents. And now our maid has a Skype account. She can talk to her family at home. She gets the weekend off. You know, there's tangible things that happen. So it's just one example, but there are many more out there of people using it in those ways. How difficult was it? I mean, what was the, the hurdles you had to go through to do that? For example, that, the job swap example you gave. Um, so my great friend and mentor um, when I was in Lebanon was the former head of uh, special forces, a guy called Sir Graham Lamb, who may well be here, but we wouldn't know. He'd be in the skies somewhere. Um, hi, Graham, if you are here, like in a dress, probably. <laughs> um, uh, Graham just said, proceed until apprehended. Proceed until apprehended. And I think that's quite a good rule in many uh, spheres. And it's probably a very good rule um, in, in diplomacy, which can be slightly uh, risk-averse as a profession. So I have to confess that in both those examples, um, I was proceeding until apprehended. And that was the case with a lot of social media, because we were, we were making it up as we went along. There weren't really rules. Six, seven years ago, there weren't many people out there trying to use social media. So we were testing, testing those lines. And I remember at one stage, um, one, of, one of my bosses at the front office, Hugh Elliott, who was in charge of the engagement strategy, said, you know, go out there and work out where the lines are for us. You know, so there was a license to take risks and a sense that if you really mucked it up, that you would be backed up. Ah, because that's important, isn't it? But you're still using your judgment to work out how far you think you should take it. Did you yeah. ever cross the line, do you think? Um, so I think, by the way, the judgment point is a recruitment point, not a social media point. I think we should, you know, we have amazing ambassadors as the UK. Many people in diplomacy are, have extraordinary judgment. And we recruit people who should be able to exercise that judgment, whether they're on Pinterest or social media or meeting the, the president. I say, I'm not sure how old you are, but I'm guessing you, you kind of joined the service before it became phenomenal. I just wonder mm -hmm. for young people now who've grown up with it from a younger age, is it harder to be sure with how to use judgment? Um, no, I think they, cause, because they already speak the language of social media in a way that, that we non-digital natives don't. Um, you know, I, th I mean, I, I had rules to make sure that uh, I didn't make too many mistakes. Um, my wife in particular would make sure I never tweeted after a second glass of wine. Uh, in the evening, I never tweeted when I was angry. Um, I, I made plenty of mistakes. Um, the biggest mistake, though, is not to be out there engaging on it. My two, my two mistakes, my two deleted tweets, just to give you a sense of mm. when the line um, was crossed. One, early after arriving in Beirut, I tweeted about um, being on a yacht. Uh, we sold in Beirut more yachts, Jaguars, Scottish salmon, Scotch whiskey, and Panadol. The last two were connected than anywhere else in the, in the world. And uh, part of my job was selling yachts. But, you know, no one in London in particular needed to see a tweet from the British ambassador in Beirut as the Middle East was burning on a yacht. And so I was told quite pleased to delete that. And I did. I think it would be less of a problem now. I think the line slightly changed, but I dele deleted that. And I tweeted actually during um, pension strikes from my official account that while I wasn't striking, I had solidarity with my colleagues who were. And uh, I had a message from the very top of the British government telling me very clearly, because it was, the tweet ended up on Sky, uh, to, uh, to delete it, which I did. And he, was, he the Prime Minister, was right. Uh, you shouldn't use your official account to take a private position like that. It would be fine if I was at T. Fletcher or at T. Fletcher123, mm -hmm. but not HMA Tom Fletcher. Um, and so, yeah. I found, I, I very clearly found a line there um, and tweeted the, deleted the tweet. Um, 
I want to ask a little bit more about social media in the Middle East, because around the time that you became diplomat, we were all seeing the aftermath of, you know, the, um, the kind of mass uprisings, which were in several countries, which were very much organised through social media. And looking back at that now, people feel that there was this false optimism about the power of social media. What's your view on the... I mean, you know, I don't know what we're allowed to call it now. Yeah. Um, I mean, but it's like the, the Chinese president said about the French Revolution, it's too soon to tell. It's too soon to tell. I think... Clearly, there's been that backlash, and the you know the, the Arab Spring, which so excited many of us, has turned for many in the region to kind of autumn or or winter. Um, I don't think that that means we should we should give up on that the sense of optimism and change that was behind it in the first place. And I certainly don't think we should give up on social media as an instrument for for bringing that change about. It's just it's going to take us much longer than than we all realised, and in a way. We walked onto a punch in Syria because we were so uh, swept up um, after those early years of the Arab uprisings in that sense that this is now irreversible, that we're living somehow uh, in a, through an, an inevitable age of change. Uh, and what the last couple of years um, have really shown us is that you know, history hasn't ended. You know, it's, um, it can go in all sorts of different directions. I want to come back to talking about the role of some of these big um, tech companies shortly. Um, but let's move our focus a bit on to the impact of Trump and what that's done to diplomacy. Because, exactly like you say, one needs to be wary of assuming everything's changed forever. But it does seem to... F the way that he uses social media, the way that the, me you know, the, the mainstream media react to it, it does seem to have had an incredibly disruptive effect in a very, very short period of time on international diplomacy. What's your yeah. view on what's going on? Yeah. Well, I mean, with one caveat here, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a retired diplomat, but I'm still a diplomat. So I have to be very careful not to suggest that Trump is some kind of narcissistic, psychologically flawed danger to all of us. That's not something I could say. Um, I, do, I do think we have to kind of separate out that kind of pantomime villain uh, that we often see um, at 3 o'clock in the morning tweeting from the White House from the areas where it does have a specific impact on our, on our collective and national interests. So do Trump's positions on climate change reduce the life expectancy of my kids? Do his positions on the international rule-based system undermine the checks and balances that we've been, we spent much of the last 100 years painstakingly putting in place with great sacrifice? Uh, do his positions on Islam uh, and openness to the world uh, make it more or less likely that extremists can recruit a new generation uh, of, of terrorists to mow us down uh, on bridges in London and elsewhere. Um, I think though that's where we've got to have the argument. Um, and social media is clearly part of that because he has upended the board. And we really see a dividing line now between people who kind of want to preserve the order of statecraft and diplomacy and those who want to overturn it. One of the great ironies of 2016 is that you know, the Chinese are now the great defenders of that sort of Davos consensus. But others around the Security Council table, table Trump, but in particular Putin, want to turn over the whole uh, table. And Britain and France are very distracted in their own corners with their own issues. On Trump's personal, the way he uses social media has really challenged me, actually, because I used to have three suggestions for, for ambassadors who were saying, should we get stuck into this? Um, they were to be authentic, engaging, and purposeful. 
The authenticity is really important on social media because people want to feel there's a human behind the handle. To be engaging is important. You want content that makes people lean forward, not the platitudes. And you want to be purposeful. I, I hope you could take the 10,000 tweets I sent in Beirut, and with some exceptions, they would stack up to a story about Britain's role in the world and our uh, care for Lebanon's stability. The problem is, Trump is authentic. Trump is engaging. I mean, we, we're talking about his tweets. Mm -hmm. And my wife wakes me up every morning, even now on the other side of the world, to tell me what he's just tweeted. And there, was a sen that there is a sense of purpose to them that connects with people. Uh, it may not be an authenticity that we can really have much sympathy with or a sense of purpose we can agree with, but he does tick those three boxes. Mm -hmm. And I think the lesson <coughs> for us is that we have to get much, much more vigilant and effective at filtering through that and then understanding what is actually truthful uh, and, um, and useful. And I, that comes back to diplomacy, really, and its role in being a source of judgment and patience and analysis in this kind of sped up 24-7 um, post-truth alternative facts environment. It's part of the issue that the, the, the politicians and the advisors around him, many of whom come from the mainstream, seem to be enabling this, that, or they're using it. I mean, is that the real challenge? Uh, yeah, and I think that's not a social media challenge necessarily. Um, I mean, one thing is the point about disruption. I mean, Trump has clearly uh, disrupted all sorts of foreign policy ideas. To be fair to him for one second, uh, and I will then stop being fair to him, sometimes it, 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 it does us no harm to, to be shaken up a little bit and to, to kind of look at a, an issue from a slightly different perspective. Because on many of these issues, we have got stuck into a rut. And, but the problem is, you know, it's one thing for uh, experts or analysts to challenge that. It's another thing for the leader of the free world to do it. And this other great irony of 2016, that an election for a leader of the free world created a vacancy for the leader of the free world. When you've actually got the, the commander-in-chief challenging your entire Iraq strategy and saying it's failing, that's much, much more, uh, much, much more damaging. And there should be much stronger checks and balances around that. I feel, having watched now almost, what, the first 100 days of Trump, a little bit more reassured that the, tr the checks and balances in the American system are, they're being tested, but not tested to, to destruction. And that there are bits, I don't want to sort of start suddenly become a cheerleader for the deep state, but there are bits of the American system which are now, are now more strongly kicking into gear to provide those checks and balances. I'll give one example. Yeah, give me example. Um, a month ago, if, if, if this week's attack in London had happened a month ago, I think we would, we'd have seen a very knee-jerk Trump midnight reaction, uh, completely counterproductive, slightly like the one his son put out yeah. that, that, that went for Sadiq, uh, Sadiq Khan. Khan. Um, I think we'd have been more likely to get one of those from the White House. This time, someone in there managed to ensure that by the time he got to his Twitter account, they thought about a more reasonable uh, presidential response. So I think that, that those, those systems are kicking in slowly now. Well, we've talked about Trump. We should talk about Putin, mm. um, because this is a big um, part of the disruption going on um, in the use of digital media in general and in terms of diplomacy, too. Um, before we came out, mm. one of the things you mentioned was the concern about how long ago people should have been paying more attention to what Putin was doing and um, what difference that might have made. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and and in so many ways, 
this, that, this is the real story of the American election, is, is the extent to which Russia seems to have been able to manipulate the outcome, but also manipulate many of those involved. And uh, I have to say, I think we're, we're only in the very foothills of discovering the extent of that. Um, I think, you know, this is a story that is going to run and run. Um, so, so, I mean, Putin is Putin's never going to be upheld as a great, as a disruptive and exciting user of Twitter, for example, but he, he is someone who is able to use technology more widely in a very disruptive uh, way, and mainly destructive, uh, destructive way. What are your observations, then, about how his, his government's been using um, new media, um, social media, as part of their... So, I mean, I'll give you one, um, one example that we try and take on at the moment at NYU, is um, he... If, if I now tweet about Assad, uh, I will often be attacked immediately by 300 uh, Russian trolls, basically robots in a, in a factory operating somewhere in Eastern Europe, will relentlessly insult me for a couple of hours. Uh, and um, you know, if you're in diplomacy, you, you develop a thick skin, but that does knock you off balance. And I, I know many, many people who would think twice about stepping into that space. I mean, it's for anyone who's been the victim of that kind of abuse on Twitter, it, even if it's from a robot, it does get to you. You know, when your mum calls up and says, are you okay? Uh, you know, it's not good enough to say, well, it's, don't worry, mum, it's just, you know, it's just robots. Um, because, you know, it, it does blast people off, and it creates a lot of noise around Russia. <coughs> Fake news is another example of this. It creates all that noise that makes everyone uncertain about what they think and, and makes people a little bit less cautious about uh, speaking out. Um, and so that is a very effective um, scientific way uh, that Russia uses um, social media to, um, to get their way in, in foreign policy. And so one of the things we're trying to do now, I don't know if this will work or not, um, I'd be interested in your thoughts, is to create diplobots. So these are the opposite of trolls. They're kind of rather nice, benign <laughs> bots <laughs> who really want everyone to get on. And you know, I think the world's a lovely place. And take on in cyberspace these uh, these trolls, but also share content. More importantly, share content from humans, uh, which is about coexistence and collaboration and partnership. So, my diplobot, after the attack two days ago in London, would have been sharing messages from Muslims in the UK, uh, condemning the attack and showing solidarity with the families of those who'd lost loved ones. They would have been taking on the kind of BNP bots who were out there saying, right, you know, this is a war. I want to ask about the impact of Brexit on British diplomacy. Um, is it going to suck all the life out of all the other stuff that diplomats could and should be doing, for example, in Syria? Um, I, I think we have to be quite realistic about the amount of um, resource and time and energy that now has to go into the negotiation. And a load of our most brilliant people are clearly working on that and not working on something else. The, in the couple of days after the Brexit vote, um, I think many of us were feeling, right, we've, we've really got to get out on the front foot and show that we are still as global power, show that we're not isolationists and it's not a vote for intolerance, and get out and do things in the world. And there's a lot of that going on, and the Foreign Office is doing a big global Britain agenda now to demonstrate that we do still have that world view, and it goes beyond Europe. But I do think we also have to be realistic, that the next, for the next two years, much of the world assumes that all we can focus on, all we have the bandwidth to focus on, is this extraordinarily complex uh, negotiation. And I find, I, sit, I live in Abu Dhabi much of the time, that's certainly the conclusion that people there have, that we are kind of out of the game for a couple of years. So I think we have to be careful not to try and do everything we were doing before. 
um, but focus on delivering a few really high-impact global policies. And to make them, I think the theme that runs through them is actually, and actually runs through Brexit, whether you're a Remainer, as many people are, or, or a Lever, is this sort of theme of liberty and global liberty, the freedom to trade, the freedom of everyone to have security and equality of opportunity, liberty of opportunity. I think that's quite a good theme for the UK to, um, to have as a kind of melody line running through our foreign policy. Because it can feel, again, you know, partly because of, of the social media and general media debate, as if there's a, a divide, isn't there, between people who say, you know, we've had enough of trying to make things better for everyone else. It's about time that we focused on need at home. And that's a fundamental divide, isn't it? Within, among people, among politicians in this country, and in many other countries too now, like America, um, about what sort of diplomatic outlook we should have. Is that yeah. a, a difference that can be surmounted in the way you're suggesting? I think it can, but I think we've got to be much more um, energetic in taking on that argument. I think probably most of us, certainly most of my working life, we've kind of assumed that that argument was won, and that there would be kind of, you know, ebbs and flows, but that basically the argument for a more engaged... Um, engage foreign policy uh, intervention. It's not necessarily in the sense of military intervention, but in the sense of being out there, 0.7% aid budget, 2% um, NATO commitment, that that was, that was pretty solid and a bedrock of what we were doing. And clearly that's coming under, under huge attack uh, at the moment. Um, it's, what, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I think that they, those are arguments that we need to be in now and be working much harder to win. Um, but also because the kind of diplomacy, that broader definition of diplomacy, the kind of naked diplomacy that I started with, isn't, can't just be left to diplomats. It's too important for that. You know, there's huge need for diplomacy now in a community like Munich, where people are negotiating access to resource between refugee, migrant communities, and local communities, and needing to negotiate that in a very savvy way. That's as in, you know, that's the new Congress of Vienna, have you seen? You know, that's where we need to be deploying our diplomatic tradecraft. Um, where I was in Lebanon, you know, the schools where more than half the people in the school were Syrian refugees. You know, the headmistress of that school was a real diplomat. Imagine the conversations she was having to have every day with, with parents at the school. That is, for me, that's real uh, diplomacy. Um, so it's more important than ever, but we need people outside the walls of diplomacy to, to think of themselves as citizen um, diplomats. You commissioned a history quite recently of the, um, the FCO, the Foreign Commonwealth Office. I wonder what it teaches us, especially given this idea that's now out there, that perhaps the last 60 years of this kind of liberal consensus was an aberration rather than a permanent change. Um, I hope it doesn't teach us that. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think you know, many of those lessons of the last 60 years are now kind of stood in front of one of... Uh, Donald Trump's walls, you know, with the hands in the air, worried whether they'll hear the first shot. But I think it teaches us that we just have to, you know, why those values matter so much and why we have to work harder to defend them. Um, the, the history you mentioned was, that was a, it was as part of a review that um, a team of us were doing of the, of the UK Foreign Office. Um, and we were really trying to work out where does, where does the Foreign Office, where does diplomacy sort of fit uh, in the new ecosystem in the 21st century? How can you adapt a, an institution really based on traditions and institutions and hierarchy, very hierarchical organograms, structures, to a world which is much more about networks and is much more fluid? Um, and so trying to help develop a change in mindset 
to be better prepared for that world, to be more focused on, on doing things in the world, the outcomes rather than just the, uh, the inputs, and more focused on the kind of expertise. Are we still allowed to talk about expertise um, in the UK? I had a question on that, to, yeah. Uh, you know, to, to have a world view, a country needs to have people who viewed the world. Well, well, you know, diplomats are supposed to be experts, and we are in, in a situation where there are mainstream politicians who talk about we've had enough of them. Is that a genuine um, challenge for, for people like yourself in, in, I, I, in trying I to get done what you think needs to be done? I think it's a challenge where, where often, by the time, as an expert, you've taken the trouble to develop a calm judgment and analysis and react. Everyone else has moved on to the next, um, you know, next bit of the carnival. So that is a challenge in a sort of 24-7 sped up social media world. You, you don't always have the time to, to take a deep breath and, and step away. Uh, but I, I mean, maybe I'm too much inside my own echo chamber, a sort of filter bubble of, uh, of people who think in this way, but I think the experts do win in the end. I think that um, I think the, the pendulum swings back to the need for that kind of uh, expertise. You're working on a report on the future of the United Nations, I gather, for the new Secretary General. Um, what sorts of findings have you had about it or what are your thoughts about the future so actually i mean a bit like with the foreign office one some of this is actually not about technology it's about yeah the key to surviving disruption whether you're kodak or blockbuster or um yeah or the foreign office or the un is to really understand what you're there for and the un has slightly lost sight of that so a lot of it is about reconnecting with that sense of kind of magnetic idealism and purpose that that has best we think it was part of the foundation of the, of the UN and the reason why we need it so much. So some of it is mindset. And then a lot of the report is really about, is, is about the technology. And um, it started out really as a, a, a set of um, ideas on how the new Secretary General can use social media to connect with that next generation of people who are, who are living much more of their lives online. But then we're also applying it to, um, to old challenges. So for example, can artificial intelligence help us do a climate change deal? Can drones help us do uh, humanitarian relief? Um, I mentioned our, our diplobots. But, and then what structures do you need to build? How do we adapt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to the internet? Do we need a Universal Declaration of Online Human Rights to help us judge these traditional issues about the, where the line is drawn between liberty and security, but for a digital age? Um, you know, what happens to all our data out there? Do we need guidelines on that? What are the guidelines on artificial intelligence? If, 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 if part of what Putin does successfully is develop faster artificial intelligence than anyone else and get that head start, how do we deal with that? Do we need a Geneva Convention on artificial intelligence and cybersecurity? So there's a whole emerging world which is quite anarchic there. And I went out and talked to a lot of tech companies who are really in the... In the Kind of really outlying areas, the frontiers of that world. And they're saying, we need some rules here. We're kind of making stuff up as we go along. You've got to tell us what we, you know, where, where are the boundaries of what we can do with this data and well, with artificial intelligence. Like that. So there was a, a, a story, actually, the BBC had to apologise over the way that they handled debate about it. But it turns out that in Pakistan, for example, Facebook was inviting people to tell them what they should do about taking down blasphemous content. And I thought that the real story there was... Facebook is working with, you know, Pakistani religious fundamentalists on the principle that we should take down this stuff. And we know that people are being murdered in Pakistan over alleged blasphemy. Bloggers being murdered in countries like Bangladesh as well. I mean, that's an interesting revelation, isn't it, about the way some of these companies are quite happy to go along with local prejudices and questionable human rights activity. 
um, because it's just good business. What's your view on that, and how, how widespread is it? So we, we debated, actually, in the, when we were doing the review of the Foreign Office, whether we needed to appoint an ambassador to Silicon Valley, effectively. You know, the shorthand was ambassador to Google or ambassador to Facebook. And that wasn't just about seeking out commercial partnerships. It was precisely about these issues. Um, and you can come at it from two sides. One is, um, how do you ensure that uh, these platforms um, are protecting people's basic human rights and not making the situation more dangerous? The other, and this will probably sound quite governmenty, is, is that we actually do need access to a certain amount of data in order to protect people. Uh, just kind of basic example from Beirut. Um, at any one time, we might have had 6,000 people in the country, <coughs> 6,000 Brits. Technologically, I would have had the means to know where they were through their mobile phones and to get them a message saying, stay clear of the centre of Beirut, We've got, there's a terrorist threat, for example, or to get them out if necessary. Um, but I could never have used that. You know, that would be real big brother to basically be using, tapping into people's mobile phones in some way like that without them knowing. Um, but if you were given the choice, if you were visiting Beirut tomorrow and I, you got a text message from me saying, you know, if you're willing for me to use this data, then I can get you a message if something goes wrong. I find that that divides, divides people. And opting in. Whether you, whether you opt in or not. Yeah. And for me, it's interesting. When I ask um, digital natives, my students, that question, they opt in. They assume that their data is out there and being used, and so much of their lives is kind of broadcasting anyway. They're much less worried about that sort of opt-in. But that's just one tiny example of, of how, without the trust, and we haven't really talked about trust, but trust is, you know, in this age of distrust at the moment, where people don't just distrust governments, but they distrust doctors, teachers, nurses, anyone in a position of, um, of authority. How do governments regain that trust that they actually need to, to protect people? Well, there's an interesting um, growth in sort of quite old, um, one, one might even say primitive myths that have been enabled by social media. For example, the whole kind of anti-vaccine movement, some of which is, um, you know, just personal, some of which is very political in countries like Pakistan, where, you know, you know that uh, uh, vaccination workers are being murdered. Um, I wonder how diplomats work on those kinds of issues when you're dealing with local prejudices and quite deep-seated mistrust. Yeah. I think you have no choice to, to, to get in the argument. Um, yeah. One of the interesting things about social media is it, 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 does, it, it, does, it does force you to pick arguments more often, which is not always very comfortable territory for diplomats because you know, a lot of people define diplomacy and think diplomacy is all about just smoothing down the edges and being nice to everyone. Actually, a lot of the best diplomacy... Many of the best diplomats I've watched were, were great at picking arguments and, and you know, being tough negotiators and taking on um, intolerance uh, and taking on arguments like that uh, online. But, it, um, but it's, it's more exposed territory. But if you just leave it... I mean, it, people often say the same thing about the, um, about the way that, that social media is used to radicalise people. You know, isn't this all terrible because, um, because Islamic State is, is using it? Yeah, they're using it, and they're, in many cases, using it more effectively than we are. They're using gaming technology very effectively to, to reach people that we're, we're not reaching at all. Um, but that, for me, is more of a reason to get involved, to get engaged, to try and fill that space, because that's where the real arguments and battles are happening, and not just to retreat and, and leave it to the, to the other side. Well, just a couple more questions before I open it up to questions from the audience and anyone who wants to uh, um, contact us via the app um, who's watching it online. Um, 
we talked a lot about how people are using it and can feel empowered on social media. I wanted to give an example of one where people thought they would be empowered, but actually it didn't seem to have that impact, which was the Bring Back Our Girls hashtag yeah. after the schoolgirls were kidnapped in Nigeria. And now we know that a number of them Absolutely. have been released. What was fascinating about the way that story unfolded was how rapidly around the world, ordinary citizens who felt really personally, passionately um, the, yeah. the human suffering of their families wanted to show solidarity. There were street protests, it turned into a news story. And yet it felt like it had no impact whatsoever. What's your view on, on that as an example? Um, I, I find it... Um, Often quite, I do a lot of work on Syria now, uh, on, a, on a, the campaign to get one million Syrian kids into school. And um, I'm often quite troubled by hashtag campaigns, mm -hmm. because I do think that often they're a substitute for real action. Uh, I love using social media to get the message to people who would never otherwise hear the message. A picture like the picture of poor Island Kurdi washed up on the beach in Turkey mm -hmm. reached and touched people in a way that that yeah, would never have happened before social media. The three-year-old three boy. Three -year -old boy. Um, but just sticking a kind of hashtag on the front of what you're going to say anyway, with Syria, um, save Syria's children or something, does not save Syria or bring back our girls. You have to then be moved to take action on the back of it. And I think we're, there, there is a danger that too often we're just slightly distracting people and that you get a nice easy hit by liking or retweeting uh, a hashtag like that. That, that replaces going down to Oxfam and donating uh, or volunteering, giving your time or joining a protest. But can I just mention yeah. one, can I just plug one idea, which is a, way of, a better way of weaponizing that compassion. And we're building now this database through which um, any business that wants to help on the global education effort can be connected. It's like online dating um, to specific projects on the ground that need help uh, about getting kids in school. So, if we need paint for a school in the Bekar Valley, Dulux can give us the paint. If we need a transport strategy for uh, kids to get school in Jordan, uh, Uber are going to provide the transport strategy. If we need internet connectivity, Facebook will provide the internet connectivity. If we need the tablets, then Microsoft will provide the tablets. It's a very different model for getting businesses involved. And my hope is that in about a year's time, we can then take that out another level, which is actually about citizens. And so if you are a geography teacher in Birmingham, retired geography teacher in Birmingham maybe, who, and you've got a day a week, you know, you're still passionate about teaching, and you see uh, a, a photo like the photo of Alan Kurdi or kids out of school, and you want to help, you can go onto this website, and we can effectively matchmake you with a school that needs a geography class taught by Skype once a week. You know, that to me is a much, much more um, personal, human, empowering, authentic form of, of development work than a lot of the more impersonal, just donate to a charity or, or hope your government will do it for you. Yeah. Um, my other one question was, given that you've been working on um, this report about the United Nations, people look at things like Saudi Arabia being on the Human Rights kind of Council and say this is exactly why the public have lost faith in those institutions and in the way that diplomacy works. Yeah. That's just a question? Or? Yes, it's a question. It's a question. I mean, particularly about those Middle Eastern states which have terrible human rights records, appalling records on freedom of speech. Um, you mentioned you spend a lot of time in Abu Dhabi. I mean, a lot of people say how Western governments seem to turn a blind eye, particularly in the Middle East, to certain regimes. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why they are so mistrusted. So I think there's, a, there's an institute... I'm going to choose to go in one direction, then you're going to pull me back onto this. Um, that there's an institutional problem here around, um, around the, the scaffolding that we built after the Second World War, to deal with these big global challenges. Um, when you look at, say, Ebola, 
when we were trying to deal with Ebola, we didn't all think, right, we must go to the UN to try and fix that. It was actually the big NGOs who got together to, to put together the, the response. And actually that goes for most of the big global challenges now. We'd, we wouldn't turn to the, the UN system, well, the, the international system. And I think that goes right across the, the piece. The, the UN Security Council I've mentioned already is a classic example of the failure of the architecture. And, but what we've got to be careful about is not just to knock the whole thing down uh, in a kind of Trump or Putin style, I, I, let's just start again, Steve Bannon would love it, level the ground and then build it. We've got to kind of be quite constructive about trying to help these institutions evolve and improve. This is why I'm doing the UN report. Um, we're talking to the World Bank about doing something for them, similar for them, helping these big organisations to adapt to these 21st century realities. And I haven't mentioned Saudi Arabia. That's such a diplomatic answer. I know. I, so, okay, let me give you a fair, like, let me try and give you a fair answer. Look, because I, I live in Abu Dhabi, yeah. and um, so I kind of, you know, see this stuff close up every day. Mm. And I also see, see the fact that uh, the Emirati government is investing huge amounts in a ministry of tolerance and the promotion of tolerance worldwide. So that there's, you know, I see all the different sides. Do I think personally, and I don't know what the Foreign Office line on this is, I, I'm, so I don't have to pretend to know it. Do I think that Saudi should be on the Human Rights Council? Probably not, uh, but the, you know these, there are deep flaws in these institutions. Okay, thank you. We'll take some questions. I noticed this one that's come up on the um, the thing, which is you mentioned that Google can also do diplomacy. What's the role of the corporate sector in influencing political decision making? Could you give us an example from your experience? Um, I, I th the corporate sector has always done a huge amount of diplomacy, and has often also driven diplomatic innovation. Uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was companies who wanted to know the outcome of the American Civil War that developed the technology to ensure they heard about it before anyone else. Uh, and, you know, those sorts of jumps forward in corporate technology then help us <coughs> with our jumps forward in, uh, in diplomatic uh, technology. So there's a lot that we can learn from corporates. Corporates also always had massive influence over, over government foreign policy, without doubt. And, you know, the Saudi example is, is perhaps a kind of very real up-to-date example of that, that the, that the commercial relationship becomes more, uh, more visible than the, than the human rights conversation. Um, so I don't think that's changed at all. Uh, what's, what's changed in a way, however suspicious of, of, of the Googles and the Facebooks and so on, is that the, the, the generation who are kind of running those companies, there may be some, some sort of fairly sinister objectives around their kind of global role, but they're also there are a lot of people in those organizations who are led by a genuine sense of the need to, uh, to change the world for the better. And I think that we have to find a way of tapping into that, of managing, of, of showing the new emperors that, you know, there are checks and balances that we use on the old emperors as well. Um, but also trying to use some of the, um, the kind of, that desire for social change and, and improvement of things that, that they also have. Um, I can give you a much longer answer to that. It's online. I did a talk at Google. It was a one-hour talk at Google, um, which is trying to reach into those issues a bit more about how we can actually <laughs> fix problems together. And when in the last few weeks we saw um, you know, a news story generated about how advertising revenues um, were being generated because of extremist videos showing government um, films. I mean, that looked like you know, government trying to use some of its clout to challenge the way some of these companies work. Yeah. In a way, that's destructive for yeah. diplomacy. Yeah, um, and there, there, there are going to be some real fights ahead um, between between government and the corporates in that space. I mean, they, they but it's also a 
there's a lot of competition there, and there's competition on recruitment. The, you know, these tech companies are hoovering up all the most talented people, the people who uh, we would have wanted to get to the front office, yeah, and hopefully were getting to the front office, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. You know, I, I spend a lot of time trying to convince people to do diplomacy, and they are, you know, they're joining Uber and Google at the moment. So there's, there's a real competition with the, um, with the corporates. And there's an attempt to recruit those kinds of people who are now being tempted by those corporates on the tech basis. Um, yeah, I think we're, 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 you know, we're fighting. It's not quite hearts and minds. I mean, it's not that strong. But, you know, there's always been a competition. We, we were competing with, what, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. We were competing, yeah, on the milk round with McKinsey and Arthur Anderson and um, ESSO. Uh, I'm just trying to think back, I mean, through distant past, yeah. the various things I used to go to. And, um, yeah, there was a competition then. But now the competition is with Google and, and Uber and Facebook. Because many, um, I mean, I... I, I won't put it out, but interesting to hear from people who, um, who are at that stage of life. They, they make, often people feel that's a job that will have more influence. Let's take some questions. Do you have questions on the floor here? Yes. Yeah, can I just take one over there and then I'll take the lady over there. We'll take them together. We've got a microphone. If you want to say where you're from and um, keep questions brief, that would be great. Did, was it, did the, I was him first, but um, we'll take all three. Yours, yours, and then the ladies. Go ahead. Uh, Johnny Hargreaves. I, I work for a, a corporate doing semi-diplomatic work in, in East Africa in particular, um, which was somewhere that I would say had another very prominent British uh, representative, digital diplomat, who you'd see the whole time on Twitter and, and locally. Who, who was it, sorry? Um, Christian Turner. Oh, yeah, uh, brilliant. Um, and, and I, for instance, I can remember him turning up to the premiere of um, uh, James Bond dressed in a tux in a sports car uh, all over Twitter and, in, in, you know, yeah. really trending locally. Um, I, I guess my question is to what degree does, you know, domestic diplomacy and advocacy around foreign policy in the UK significantly lag our digital diplomacy yeah. abroad? Yeah, that's a good point. Because, you know, it's all very well talking about this, but clearly the foundations of... Uh, our, our diplomacy abroad are, have been undermined, arguably because we haven't done it locally. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, nice question. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Page, uh, nice to see you, Tom. Hi. I'm in the Foreign Office, but on a secondment in the private sector at PwC. And my question, I'd like to, if I may, if it's not really greedy, um, first one about secondments and about cross-fertilization between public and private sector. It features in your Fletcher Review and now Diplomacy 2020 to raise the level of ambition for how many people we have from the Foreign Office getting experience in the private sector, including the big tech companies, big consultancies and yeah. so on, getting more experience of commercial work, helping with export promotion, program project management, all of these things which the private sector can help us with. All the more important since we voted to leave the EU and we're going to spend a lot of time negotiating bilateral trade agreements. Level ambitions, fantastic. 5% of the diplomatic service, if not more, on a secondment in the private sector at any given time. But there are big constraints in the way. It's yeah. a crusade that I'm fighting from yeah. where I stand in PwC, and I'd like to work with you and others and the secondment unit to see it happen. And the longer I spend in the private sector, the more I feel the dearth of contact between public and private sector. And I think we ought to be raising our game about how private sector is helping government while we're in the negotiations with the EU. And I'd be interested to know how we should do that. Second question, Christian Turner, after the Arab Spring, when he was Middle East director, said that it's going to be a little bit like uh, what happened with the falling of the Berlin Wall. Everybody said 1989 was a pivotal moment, but actually the pivotal moment was 1981, when solidarity yeah. was created in Warsaw, and it took nearly 10 years before we saw the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Are we going to see the same with the Arab Spring? How long will it take? 
Thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, ODI. I wanted to take you up on two contradictions in what you said. Okay. The first is your idea that anyone from a geography teacher in Birmingham to Google should be deciding development allocations. Some of us would oh. actually think that there are experts on this yeah. who should be doing it, not Google, not private sector dating services for teachers and so on. Do you really think that this is the best way of using expertise? And the second contradiction is your diploma thing. Uh, you, uh, you pointed out, and I agree with you, that the problem isn't so much fake news as uncertainty about news. And simply putting an extra batch of bots into this will simply in increase that uncertainty. Don't we have to find better, better, different ways of tackling this? I mean, the argument here is the one about the 350 million to the EU that the uh, Leavers mm. supported. The people now believe that by concentrating on rebutting that, we just put it further into the public domain. And concentrating on rebutting your Assad supporters will just put them further into the domain. Shouldn't you be doing mm. something different? Yeah. Do you want me to sit in the order they were asked, or should we work backwards? I've got them written down as well. Okay. Um, should we go for that one first? Yes. Yeah. And then if I if I miss something, to yeah, no, pull no, me I'm up on it. Yeah. Um, um, two yeah. questions then. The first was about you know these examples of how you might match expertise through um, apps or, or through yeah. corporations, and that really isn't, um, she's arguing, the way that we should yeah. be thinking about diplomacy and how so, it works in aid. So on that, I, I hope I wasn't arguing that uh, the individuals and um, uh, the Googles should decide the overall, overall allocations. I, I don't want to replace Britain's aid budget, for example, with a bunch of us just saying. You said most aid was now NGOs, and it is not. No, 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 no. Aid, aid, aid is very much completely driven by governments. I, I, I don't contest that for a second, did I? I apologies, I know I said the opposite. That was a piece of fake news from me. Um, the, uh, so I'm not suggesting we're suddenly going to kind of crowdsource the policy around, um, around how we spend our aid budget at all. What I'm suggesting is that it's a more empowering way. We, we've got to find a more empowering way to get more people involved in the effort. And we might have... You know, in, in the past, we might have thought, well, the only way I can get involved is if I'm going to give up work for a year and go and volunteer in the region, or if I go and work in a charity shop. There are many, I think many people find that in their, they have time and space in their working lives, they'd like to apply to these challenges. I've got, let me just give you one very practical example. I've got a fantastic guy in Silicon Valley who's giving um, one day a month uh, to helping us develop startups in the region who are doing, on your second point, creating fantastic content which is countering radicalization. They're not taking on the bots and so on, they're creating their own content about coexistence in the Middle East, which is amazing. And he's giving that, he's just giving up his time to do that, rather than donating a tenner a month to Oxfam. And we'll see, I think that has an impact. And I think it's, I, I suppose one of the things I've kind of understood coming out, is really comes to, comes to Andrew's point, is that governments can't crack these problems themselves. Uh, we maybe never could, but we certainly can't crack them now. We don't have the resource and the bandwidth and the and the know-how to crack every problem in the world anymore. And so we do need to build these kind of much broader um, uh, coalitions to get, to get stuff done. Um, the, the, the idea of when you use things like Diplobots, actually you're just adding to that disruption and that confusion out there. And that's not where the focus should be if you actually want to win back people to reasoned yeah. thinking. Um, I, th I mean, I think, as I say, I think that's a very legitimate criticism of the, of the Diplobots. I think um, there's a danger that it just becomes one more form of kind of inauthentic. It's one of the challenges we're giving ourselves at the moment. I would much rather we had armies of humans coming on and having the arguments. Um, what the diplomat Diplobots can do is neutralise... Um, so, for example, I, I, this week I was with um, 
uh, a lady who, uh, who uh, uses Twitter to, um, to campaign for gender equality. Every time she tweets, she gets hit by the most vicious, like brutal insults. Um, if, I could, if we can find a way to protect her from that, <coughs> that allows her to then make her arguments without feeling intimidated, that feels like a, a way of using technology to put the human back at the center of things in a, in a, uh, in a, in a more effective way. Um, but no, I, I, I agree that what we don't want to do is just create some great kind of robot war um, where we're just watching the robots arguing. But as you said in your answer, actually, it does come back to corporates ha have so much power and they could turn off a lot of that abuse if they wanted mm. to. It, mm. it, it, it suits mm. them at the moment not yep. to. Um, yep. Let's take the two questions from the gentleman in the front row here. Um, I'm going to take the second one first because I really like that one. Um, <sighs> if we make a comparison mm. between 1981 and the Solidarity mm. Movement of Warsaw and when the Berlin Wall actually came down, is there a comparison between the Arab Spring and what might lie ahead? Is that useful? Way to think. Um... I think there is in that um, maybe it's idealistic and naive, but I do I do think the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, and uh, that we do get there in the end. Um, but we, we, in diplomacy, we're very rarely accountable for the things we get wrong. Uh, one of the things I got wrong was after <laughs> after the conflict in Syria started, um, I would go around predicting that Assad would be gone in three months. And why did you predict that at the time? Do you think? There was just that sense of, of, of momentum and change, the spirit that was in the air. Um, and it was something I was hearing from, from people all over the place, partly because I was in the equivalent of what we now call a Twitter echo chamber. I was in an echo chamber. Everyone I was talking to was convinced Assad was going. They were working for it. Um, I think you could probably go back and look at the Iraq situation and see similar bits of wishful thinking in some of the ways we... In 2003, as you know, I was in Paris, we predicted Chirac would go with us into Iraq. Yes. Yeah, and so we don't often we don't often go back and try and work out why we got those calls wrong, but but and I don't know the answer to why we got the calls wrong, but uh, that has taught me not to make any predictions about the Middle East. Do so that my way of dodging the question is to say I don't know. You know the one thing but that's worth that is that I did a program with Konstantin Gebert, who was involved in the underground um, sort of Polish dissident newspaper business, and I interviewed him about the Arab Spring, and he said. The thing was about the Solidarity Movement was you built these long-term mm. physical relationships. Mm -hmm. You had to trust each other. You were smuggling things in your clothes. Yeah. And there was this illusion that somehow doing it on the social media yeah. was the same. And it yeah. wasn't. It's not about a hashtag. No, it's, you, know, you don't have the same thing. Anyway, there's yeah. more to talk about sometime. And the other question was about um, the role of secondments and how yeah. much more there needs to be um, the diplomatic service benefiting from going into corporations and, yeah. and back. I mean, I think Although there is rightly a lot of nervousness, as we've already yeah. discussed, about the way these big corporations yeah. might abuse I think what insight they get. Yeah. I mean, I think we're building the planes as we fly. I think that um, philosophically, people understand the need for more interchange and cross-fertilization. Um, but as you hint, and, and uh, as many have experienced, it doesn't always work like that. And there's often a slight sense that when you go out of diplomacy and come back in, that you've just been on some sort of glamorous stag do or something. You've just been off doing something else. Um, and now you're coming back to real work. I, I don't think it's always seen as a kind of proper learning developmental experience and a chance to, to take the best ideas um, back, and, back and forth. I think, uh, your point, I think Mr. Severe's point about we should be sending people out to non-traditional areas to get that experience as well. Um, I'd love, love it if someone was here at the ODI. Uh, I'd love it if someone was Google. You know, I think there are, there are, there's lots we need to broaden out the pool of the companies that we go to. It tends to be still a bit kind of Rolls-Royce 
British Aerospace, um, and so on. Um, in a way, I'm trying to experiment with that, with that now, I'm trying to do a little portfolio, but it, it, it brings other challenges. Uh, you know, there's lots of bits of work which I have to try think very carefully now. Am I willing to work on this project? Uh, is it going to be a problem for me going back in in the future? And, and therefore not working on, on quite a lot. But it's, I wonder whether the model in the future will be the more people come out at this stage of life compared to the old model, which was that you worked 65 and then joined, joined the boards of a defence manufacturer. And we need to do a lot of work on conflict of interest in working out. Yeah. yeah. It's a really, that's a really tricky one. And it's a bit of a grey area, I think, at the moment. I'll go through that last question that was asked, and then we'll take some of the ones that have come in online, which are really good. Um, so this was a question about um, how yeah. far the kind of core domestic... Di diplomatic worlds, you know, which runs things, like, you know, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, should be learning more from the digital work that's going on abroad, where actually it can feel like some of the diplomats on the ground are doing things that's far more engaged and Yeah, it, fresh. It, I mean, it's a very good question, it, Johnny. It kind of goes completely to the heart of a lot of the debates we're having in the Foreign Office and a lot of the debates we had around that Foreign Office review. Um, Christian Turner is exactly the best example to use of this um, as someone who was an absolutely extraordinary digital ambassador out there kind of breaking new ground, whether he was jumping in and out of bond cars or, or um, doing, doing things promoting other, other aspects of the UK effort in, in Kenya. But I think Christian, if he was here, would say, it, you, you can't then start doing that when you're back, as he is as a director general for the Middle East and North Africa. Um, I suspect that, I know that, because I've experienced this myself, ministers would be pretty unhappy with that pretty quickly if they felt there was lots of diplomats running around here expressing their views about about policy at home. The, quite often I was told, um, you can do what, uh, crudely, you can do whatever you want as long as no one in London hears. Mm -hmm. There was that sense that you're off in Beirut, it doesn't, yeah, it's fine, it's kind of, off you go, but just make sure none of it percolates back here and don't get on the Today program and don't get on Sky. And it, if you get into the Daily Mail, then all bets are off. Um, uh, and, Whereas the reality, as we all know, is that these, all these boundaries are blurring now. Uh, and so we will have to find new ways of doing it from at home as well as, as overseas. But there are, there are arguments to be had there, with, um, particularly with ministers. Thank you. I'll take a question that came in online from Sebastian Kratzer. Would, he'd like to ask, how do you see the use of technology and social media in the resolution of armed conflicts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've seen Trump trying to do that. I'm not sure about resolution, but... Um. Um, so, wow. I, and I come back to an earlier point, which is that let's not throw out everything we've learned about diplomacy with the kind of digital bathwater. Right. Like, you still need really brilliant um, diplomats, soldiers, peacekeepers, peacemakers out there doing that who aren't necessarily live-tweeting every moment of the Iran deal. You know, the Iran deal was done mainly in secret. Uh, you know, there was some savvy tweeting from the Iranians and by Kerry, but it wasn't a kind of blow-by-blow -blow commentary on what they were doing. The Cuba deal was done by, you know, in secret by the, the Vatican with the Americans and the Cubans and others. So there's a lot of, a lot of work that's going to carry and continue to go on far away from, um, you know, it's not going to be live Instagrammed uh, and is absolutely vital and depends on traditional um, diplomatic skills. Where I think the technology can be interesting is in, is in mobilizing public constituencies behind peace. And you saw in a way, uh, you know, we've all been talking about Martin McGuinness a lot this week, and I worked a lot on Northern Ireland, but you saw in a way the way that public support for the peace process pushed the parties 
closer together, force the parties to make compromises they might not have made otherwise. And my theory, and I don't know if it'll be proved right, it's too soon, again, too soon to tell, as with the Arab Spring, is that each time there's been a leap forward in the democratization of diplomacy and peace building, printing press, television, um, parliamentary democracy, that peacemaking has got better. In that the bottom line, many fewer people, it doesn't feel like that now, but many fewer people are dying in conflict. And my, so my theory is if you take that to another level then, this sort of the digitalization, this opening up of, of these issues to a broader public will make it more likely that we can promote coexistence and, and push against conflict. But that is very much um, work in progress. It's yet to be proved. And it depends on people really recognizing that, that this is actually a superpower. And it's not just for hashtags and cute cats and Justin Bieber's hair. But it also depends where you're speaking from. I mean, for all those hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Syria and you know, other countries yeah, affected by course, conflict, yeah, heading yeah. for Europe, which you know, then feeds into headlines, yeah. um, they're all interconnected. And they're not seeing a decline in warfare and death. But it can yeah. seem here that people are relatively safe yeah, I mean, it's, and want to put up a, a wall, yeah. essentially. But it's the, facts, the facts are pretty clear that we are, you know, we are seeing those declines uh, and that we are getting more people out of poverty. Uh, you know, there are some amazing trends. Um, now, there's absolutely no consolation to someone who's, who's crossing the Bekaa Valley with no possessions um, and getting in a, a life raft across the Mediterranean. Of course, um, it's no consolation. But, but I, you know, I, I did history. You know, if you try and look at those broader, long-term historical trends, we are moving in the right direction. And I, my hope is that technology allows us to, do, to take that next step. Um, you may partly answer the next question. Do you think diplomacy still requires countries to send people to each country to work face-to-face? -face? Sounds like you do. Yeah. I, um, yes, I think um, when, we, when we looked at the Foreign Office, um, one of the things we talked about was um, an embassy is not a building. We can't think of an embassy as a bricks and mortar thing with a flag on the top. An embassy traditionally, at the beginning, was a group of people that went out to that country and, and did the, the human, the last, you know, the last three feet. Uh, of diplomatic interaction. I think you still need that. Um, you can't replace, you know, famously, we're going to replace the front of the fax, someone once said. You can't replace um, diplomacy with a fax machine or a, or a Twitter account. Those uses of technology can help diplomacy, but they can't uh, replace it. The human context still matters. So you, Donald Trump's proved that because his mass rallies are such an interesting continuing part of how he engages with his audiences. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, next question from Julia Harra. Uh, PhD researcher in Italy, she'd like to ask how should diplomats and heads of state deal with Donald Trump, who clearly wants to be undiplomatic? Yeah, I think it comes back to the, the point I made about picking the right fights. I think it's very easy to just to get distracted by him uh, and end up having an argument over in one corner and miss the fact that then a climate change deal has been ripped up. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to kind of focus the firepower uh, in the right area. I would say uh, I have to try and be. I have to try and stretch my diplomatic vocabulary here. I do think that we shouldn't rush to offer him the excessive trappings of hospitality and power. And uh, there is a. I, I couldn't comment on the state visit, but the. I, this kind of goes. I, mean, I, I I looked after the relationship between, briefly between Blair. Blair and Bush, then Bush and Brown, then Brown and Obama, and then Obama and Cameron. I sort of saw these different relationships. And one thing I wish I'd known before working in Downing Street was um, it doesn't help with the Americans to appear too needy and too desperate. 
They can smell it a mile off. And um, Donald Trump in particular um, can, uh, can see that coming. And um, so I think if we do have particularly powerful things in our armory, and Her Majesty the Queen is, is about the most powerful bit of that that we have in many ways, mm -hmm. that we should, um, we should think very carefully and strategically <coughs> about how to use them. Uh, Talleyrand said, pas trop de zèle. That's not kind of run. It's not rush. It's not rush it. Um, <laughs> is diplomacy, right, this is a question from Michel Chivunga um, from Policy House. Is diplomacy fit for purpose? Um, and I suppose it's kind of, it's just looking for a more overview answer on the fact that obviously you feel there's stuff that can be done t to make it adapt for the, the age we live in. But I think there's a real concern about what state it's in and really how far it's able to achieve anything, um, especially as we're about to go into our Brexit negotiations. I think the, the encouraging here is that, um, that lots of people in diplomacy do recognise the need to uh, change and innovate and improve. And, and some of that's about opening up and being more transparent about what we, what we do. Some of it is about using innovation more effectively. Some of it is about making sure we've got the skills and the expertise um, to really add uh, genuine value. I, I think there's a... I mean, that's, that was why the Foreign Office commissioned this review. They, they, they wanted to see how those things... Uh, could be improved. So I think the, the key thing here is that there, there's a recognition that that change and development and improvement is um, is necessary. I can't remember the second part of that question was about... It was about the UK diplomacy in particular, but I think that's OK. Yeah. I want to take that question. Don't scroll past... I think, uh, let me just give you one example on that, because... Um, oh, I see. No, scroll because it, I think it's very easy to... Um, it's very easy Where to kind of beat UK? up on the Foreign Office. Yeah. Um, but just in this particular world of digital diplomacy, there's only one tiny bit of diplomacy. The, the UK Foreign Office has been as innovative as any of them. And I talked about the freedom that we were given in that first wave when, you know, when there were only three or four ambassadors out there trying to use it. They, we got given a lot of space to, uh, to explore and innovate. And that wasn't the case for many other countries. Canada at that time, you had to clear every tweet with the minister. So as a result, you know, the, the whole thing just ground to a halt. Um, and I think most people, when they, when they look at the, how the Foreign Office has used these tools from outside, other diplomatic services, they think that the Foreign Office is one of the innovators. Um, so, so I think the ability is there to, to, keep, to keep improving. Thank you very much. So um, this is an interesting question. Do you see a possibility of negotiating with extremists and terrorists via modern technology? A lack of communication with those groups doesn't seem to be helping us. Yeah. Um, there was a very stupid um, uh, minute written by number 10 Downing Street a few years ago, and I know because I wrote it. Uh, that said um, we shouldn't talk to anyone who is engaged in violence. This was in the context of Palestine, actually, at the time. And um, uh, it was a bizarre thing, to a uh, bizarre sort of edict, um, because that, that, that effectively counts out talking to our Ministry of Defence and our, our own soldiers, for example. Um, and it certainly, I mean, it obviously dawned on me fairly quickly when I got to Beirut that if I wasn't talking to people engaged in violence, then I'd have a very boring and... Um, wasted time, because everyone I needed to talk to was violent. Uh, so, so I think the first point is you do, you, you know, you, the mindset point, you have to talk to your enemies, you have to talk to people you disagree with. Um, I spent four years doing Northern Ireland, uh, you know, so I spent a lot of time negotiating with Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams. Uh, and one thing I think that's been really positive about the coverage of Martin's death has been that recognition by most of the media that it was necessary. Oh, I to have that conversation. You, I'm about to go and present Newswatch. We have had 
hundreds and hundreds mm. of complaints that the coverage of Martin Guinness mm. has completely glossed over the many years he was an yeah. RA commander and the murders that yeah. he's you know, held responsible for, and that it's not good enough to have focused on you know, the end point. I can understand why, why there were strong views, but I also understand why people recognise that at some point you have to have those conversations and move, move beyond that. Otherwise, we'd still have... Otherwise, the towers, which I and my guys built on the border in Beirut to keep the Syria war out, which were all from Belfast, would still be in Belfast, um, keeping communities apart in Belfast. Um, so, so some of it's a mindset about being ready to talk to the other side. And I do think you can do that through new technology. I mentioned specifically the fact that I wasn't allowed to talk to Hezbollah, but I was um, arguing with Hezbollah supporters um, and Al-Qaeda people online um, instead. Now, a white, male, middle-aged Brit is not going to win all those arguments in the Middle East. Uh, it's, it's much more important that others take on those arguments. But, um, but it was a way of sort of uh, uh, often clarifying misunderstandings and, and challenging some of the more sort of ridiculous um, stereotypes that the other side had of, of us. I don't know if it is a comparison, but if you look at you know the, um, the huge negotiation in South America ending that long um, sort of essentially civil war, um, you know, with, with Maoist um, guerrillas, how, I mean, that was all achieved through long-term traditional means. One wonders, in the kind of long-term war we're in now, with Islamists who aren't necessarily allied to one group, but seem to radicalise off each other's material, is there any comparison of, of how you might use new technology to try and break that? Especially in the light of this week, where, you know, all the evidence suggests this guy, you know, whatever Islamic State says, would have gone online, he had a long criminal record, and um, these lone wolves are more and more mm -hmm. the reality of how we see terrorism working. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think there's, a, there's a lot you can do to, to try and to, to challenge some of the underlying arguments, and that social media is just one form of media alongside TV, newspaper, face-to-face -face conversations to, to challenge that. It won't, be the, it won't be the answer, but if our opponents are using it, effectively, then we have to be in an arms race with them. We have to be more effective than them at using, at using these tools. But it's just one tool among many. Which actually leads to the next question that came in, which is, um, do you think new generations of, of, well, you know, kind of keyboard warriors will have the necessary skills? One wonders almost, do you need to recruit mm -hmm. a separate mm -hmm. cohort of people who are like your, you know, your, your good hackers? Interesting. I mean, to work been, alongside the diplomats. I mean, there have been phases in the past when um, when uh, parts of the UK diplomatic system would have recruited safe breakers and people who are good at breaking and entering and so on. Well, they recruit a lot of cyber criminals. Um, who, yeah, mm. and this is the, the same. Yeah, the same philosophy. You do, mm. you do need people who really understand this stuff. And there was a very specific role for them. And I, may, I imagine if you went down to GCHQ in Cheltenham, you'd find many more people with, with those sorts of, you know, those sorts of brains. Um, no, they they won't necessarily always be the people who are best at doing emotional intelligence and kind of face-to-face -face diplomatic work. Um, so I think you need both. That would be a new thing then, to be bringing in more of those. Have we got the last couple of questions in the room? Um, I'll take, um, I can't take all four of them. The gentleman at the back, and then I'll take these two at the front. Um, can you make the questions very tight, please, so that we can get them in time? Good. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, Guy Bannon from the European Institute of Peace, working on preventive diplomacy. Um, just to say, firstly, I mean, certainly I agree that 
all the research shows more inclusive peace processes lead to better outcomes. So just a remark on the right. earlier point that you Thank made. Thank you, that's reassuring. Um, <laughs> the second, the, but the, the question I have really is what is your definition of diplomacy? Because in my experience, and I've worked for the European Commission for a long time, the European External Action Service, in the, in the field it seems that if you're employed on a contract by a foreign ministry, you're a diplomat. If you're employed by a development ministry, by a trade ministry, you're not. And certainly not if you're working for HTC, CMI, you're not a diplomat. That school, how do you, how do you respond to that? Okay. Thank you. And then there was the gentleman, I think, just in front. Did you have one, Dave? You didn't? Okay, no. I'll, I'll give it to... I know I've definitely got one at the front there. Um, Hello? Yep. It's on. It's on. Just ask. I'm Mohamed from Turkey. Uh, I would like to ask a question about uh, the recent events, I mean, recent uh, uh, incident uh, in Holland, Tur Turkish Republic, and mm -hmm. Holland. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a diplomat, how do you uh, comment, uh, quickly comment, um, giving, giving that permission to uh, diplomats to go out of the uh, building and not giving permission to uh, Minister of Social Policy of Turkey. Yeah. Let me answer, because I think I can explain it and yeah. we can answer it. That's a really good, let's take that one first. Um, really interesting, major diplomatic row over the Dutch government's decision. I think they turned the plane back, didn't they? Yeah, um, and refusing to allow a Turkish minister to go and address a rally, which is, you know, ahead of um, Erdogan's um, big referendum on giving himself much more powers. It's it's escalated very fast. Uh, it, what's your view on it? Oof, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And what, what's your because, view? <laughs> <laughs> and we should say also they, did allow, they did allow opponents of it to yeah. with rallies. But and it, and it actually it, it tracks very much with, with where we were going on, around the platforms and whether they should shut down. The extent to which it's okay to shut down people you disagree with on the platforms. So it's a, you know, I, I see it as a question in the same space. What, what's, what was your, what's your take, very briefly? Do you think it was, you think it was wrong? Yeah. Actually, it's, it was wrong because uh, our, uh, our minister uh, has been kept in eight hours or more and by the police, of Dutch police, and they didn't let him go out even our minister. Right, so there's so yeah, yeah. So on that, yeah. We'll have that, to yeah. leave okay. it there. Okay. Yeah. On, on um, that, I'm not a fan of ripping out the, the diplomatic conventions that have existed for years and years about protecting uh, government spokesmen and ministers as they move around. The origin of those was actually with, believe it or not, Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, <coughs> surprisingly, Genghis Khan has left us with a real legacy there of something that really helps protect us, pr protect diplomacy. And so I would much prefer to see diplomats and government representatives um, treated with respect where, wherever they go, as, as someone who hopes to go back to that one day. Um, the question, yeah, the Guy's question was on, um, on, on the definition of diplomacy. Yes. Two, two quick points on this. One, one, I think, as I may have sort of given a sense of, for me, diplomats shouldn't just include government people, let alone just foreign office people. And uh, so, yeah, I think the diplomatic effort involves many, many more people who are outside those traditional um, diplomatic state-to-state -state, uh, roles. But, the, but you've touched in a way on, on a debate that was at the heart of, of the work we were doing on the Foreign Office Review, which is this argument about are we there 
purely to deal with the national interest? Or are we there to, in some way, encourage positive change in the world? Um, and that's, been a, that, that's always been a debate uh, in diplomacy. It's kind of come up a lot more in the last sort of 10, 20 years. And on that, I'm much further towards the promoting positive change in the world. Um, when I submitted the report, um, uh, the, the, the then Foreign Secretary disagreed with me and was much more, and he was the boss, uh, much more focused on the national interest. You hope that's changing. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, uh, Tom. Sorry we can't take more questions. But I just, before we finish, I just thought I'd draw out some of the interesting things you said, which is while you've really advocated the importance of embracing the way social media in particular can be used positively, um, I'm fascinated by underlying it. All the great examples you give of the big deals that are done are still done through that traditional face-to-face, long-term um, thinking and negotiating. And I think this sense of the importance of time and of, of thinking issues through over time seems to be key, um, even though we're living in a world in which diplomacy or diplomatic incidents can seem to happen overnight and you can be firefighting at one level but actually the, the core thinking is, is much deeper. I think there's also a real issue that you've opened up about how these big corporations uh, like Google and Facebook uh, what their role is mm. in, in international relations and how far it's corrosive or potentially helpful and I think um, we didn't go into you know the broader issue about public concern about surveillance in great detail, but there's also a big divide, isn't there, about how far people feel happy about how the data's been used. Um, well, God, we should talk again in a year and see where we are, shouldn't we? Um, thank you again to Tom Fletcher. Thank you both to all of you right, here you. and everyone online who sent in uh, questions. There is tea and coffee outside in the lobby, and you can also buy Tom's book, because um, you'll be signing them if you want. And uh -huh. so please do stay and enjoy refreshments and continue the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.